0: Marketing is necessary to run any business well. And while sometimes marketing can feel tedious or overwhelming, it doesn't have to be that way. In episode 31, we shared some of our tried and true tips and tricks related to smart habits for marketing online in unexpected ways.
1: And in addition to this special episode, we've decided that we'd like to show you how we do this ourselves. We hope you can take some of our smart habits and tips, see what's worked for us and how we've gotten results and implement these into your own business.
0: That's right. We'll be sharing all of this in a webinar on Friday, January 22, 2021. We'll be sharing our tips on building smart habits so you can market your translation or interpreting business in ways you may not have considered before and make marketing feel like less of a chore and more like a natural part of your workday.
1: We will share how you can think outside the box when it comes to your area of specialization and where you can best reach clients in your field and we will show you how you can market your business without feeling salesy while using platforms and tools you already have experience with, even some you might never have expected.
0: Those who sign up will get a recording of the webinar as well as a quick reference guide with our tips for marketing in unexpected ways and making a consistent habit of it. You can find the link to the webinar details and registration page at bit.ly forward slash smart marketing habits.
1: And as a way to say thank you to our email subscribers, we'll be sharing a discount code with everyone on our email list for this upcoming webinar. So watch your inbox. If you're not on our email list yet, go to smarthabitsfortranslators.com and sign up. And if you are already receiving our emails, remember to use the discount code when you register for the webinar. We really hope to see you on January 22nd, 2021, so we can share our tips and strategies with you.
0: Welcome to Smart Habits for Translators, a podcast for translators by translators, bringing you simple strategies to build better habits. In each episode, we'll focus on specific habits for translators in various stages of their careers. If you're a translator who enjoys learning about habits to improve your business and lifestyle, then this is the podcast for you. We're your hosts, Madalena Sanchez Zampaolo
1: and Veronica de Michelis. Like you, we are professional freelance translators trying to balance the challenges that come with building a career and maintaining clarity and boundaries between work and personal life. We hope you'll join us in this conversation about smart habits and discover some simple strategies you can apply today to help you build your career and achieve the lifestyle you desire.
0: Welcome to Smart Habits for Translators. This is episode 32. If you listened to our popular episode on conference habits, which was episode three at the very beginning of our podcasting journey, you may remember that we mentioned a book called The Introvert's Edge How the Quiet and Shy Can Outsell Anyone. Well, we're really excited to welcome a special guest today, the author of the book, Matthew Pollard. Matthew is responsible for five multi million dollar business success stories all before the age of 30. His humble beginnings, the adversities he faced, and his epic rise to success show that anyone with the right motivation and the right strategies can achieve anything they set their mind to. Today, Forbes calls him the real deal. Global gurus listed him as a top 30 sales professional, Top Sales World magazine named him a top 50 speaker, and Big Speak lists him as an international top 10 sales trainer. He's also the best-selling author of The Introvert's Edge, which hit the Amazon charts as the eighth most-sold book of the week, appears on HubSpot's list of the most highly-rated sales books of all time, and was selected by Book Authority as the number two best introvert book of all time. His soon-to-be-released second book, The Introvert's Edge to Networking, has already received endorsements from Harvard, Princeton, Neil Patel, Michael Gerber, Dr. Ivan Misner, and Marshall Goldsmith. Welcome to the podcast, Matthew.
1: Thanks for having me on. I'm
0: super happy to be here. Yes, thanks for joining
1: us, Matthew. We both love The Introvert's Edge and often recommend this book to our friends and colleagues who may struggle with some uh, introvert tendencies. And we're so excited to hear that your second book is coming soon. uh, And we'll make sure to link to both of them in the show notes. Well
2: terrific thank you. Look I have to say it's been an interesting journey uh, and I'm sure we'll get into it that the the book was never meant to be written especially I was never going to be the one that was going to write it. So it's it's been such a pleasure to see how many people it's helped especially in those highly educated fields where tend to gravitate more introverts.
1: Yeah, and that's definitely a field that uh, we and a lot of our um, audience work in. So we're really excited to share this with, uh, with our listeners. So let's jump right in. Can you tell our listeners about yourself? Uh, what is your background? Uh, what do you do for a living? And how has your career evolved?
2: So I think the important thing here is that a lot of people, when they hear me speak, on podcasts like this or see me speak on stage, especially after you hear the awards I've won for speaking. It's so easy. I think introverts always do this. We project extroversion onto successful people. And it's it's just not true. I mean if I was to go back to my high school years, I mean I, I had a reading speed of a sixth grader in late high school. I had horrible acne. And you know, for me, you know, it was I was always seeing, I saw myself as a slow kid in school. I mean, I was willing to work hard, but it just didn't seem to click for me. And thanks to my mother actually, who just wouldn't take no for an answer from anyone that said this is just the way life was going to be for me. You know, I, I got diagnosed with this thing called Erlen syndrome, which basically means I put on a pair of colored lenses and miraculously I can learn to read. Now I, I can't learn to read, you know, like I can't read like everyone else at that stage. I can start the process of learning. So for two years, I hustled to get through high school and I got in the top 20% of my state, luckily enough. But it was exhausting. I mean, it took everything I got because I had to catch up from so far behind. And I think my family could see that I just didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And given the fact that I had, it been so hard to get through high school, they knew I just wouldn't stick in university if I didn't figure out what I wanted. So we all agreed that I was going to take a year off to, to find myself. And you know, I took a job at a real estate agency, and I think most people hear real estate and are like, "Oh, you're the guy out selling." I wasn't. I was the guy in the back office doing data entry. Yeah, seriously, with a look on my face, like, "Don't talk to me. I'm here to find myself, right?" Like, <laughs> it was it was just my you know interim job to work out who I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. Except the problem was that literally three weeks into my job, my manager comes up and he says, "Unfortunately, Matt, we got some bad news. Head office has just decided to close down." This, this office where you're, you're out of a job. I mean, seriously, I've worked there three weeks now. I mean, for the Americans listening, it, they have to understand it's very different in Australia. I mean, you, you're talking summer break and Christmas break at the same time. Like everybody goes on holidays on the 20th of December and they do not come back until the 15th and 20th of January. Yeah. So nobody is hiring. Like the only jobs I could find in the classifieds were these things called commissioner only sales jobs. Now, if you can imagine a kid with bad acne, funny lenses and braces that kind of felt like he was, you know, constantly ridiculed in school, finally getting into commission on these sales, you can imagine it's not where I wanted to be, but it was the only job I could get. And I watched my dad break his back for 80 hours a week in a full-time job to support the family. There was no way I was going back to him to say, sorry, you you know, there's nothing else I can do. So I applied for all three jobs that I could find and I got all three jobs. You know, I found out later that they just hire everyone, commission only. Good. So, you know, actually the job that I took selling um, business to business telecommunications literally had this saying, you know, we just throw mud up against the wall and see what sticks, which sounds like a fun saying until you realise you're the mud, right? So, where <laughs> I was, like, after I, I went and took a, a job, I had five days product training, not a single second of sales training, and I get thrown on this road. It's called Sydney Road in Melbourne, Australia. It's over a thousand stores on each side, and I get told to go sell. Problem is no one told me how to sell. So I went to take my my walk into the first door and I realized I didn't know what to say. So luckily enough, I, I took a deep breath. I walked in and I was politely told to leave. Shortly after that, I was less politely told to leave than I was sworn at. My personal favorite though was always getting told to get a real job. Like this was the only job I could get, right? So, you know, I, I was always getting told that kind of. It was like salt on the wound. But door after door, this just kept happening. I got rejected. I got sworn at. I got told to get a real job until my ninety third door, where I made my first sale. You know, I remember I made seventy dollars. I was ecstatic. Now <laughs> forty five seconds. Right, because I had this, rela- my next realization for the day, I'm going to do this again tomorrow, and the next day, and the next. I mean, that was going to be my year. And I think a lot of people listening at home kind of have this thing happen when they get stuck in sales. And I was really stuck in sales. Like, that's all I did. I didn't even have something else that when I got a client, I got to do. Like, I had to do this every single day. You know, I, you have to make this decision. Do I want to fight through it? And I think that entrepreneurs have that hustle, that bit of grit about themselves, that they feel like it's worth it, they're going to push through or they give up, right? Fight or flight. Mm-hmm. So for me, giving up wasn't an option. I wasn't willing to go home and say, sorry, dad, you know, I'm not going back. But I also wasn't willing to hustle every day. I mean, that would have meant my year was going to suck. So what I did is I made the decision at that moment that sales had to be a process, a system like anything else. And I went, well, how could I go about learning the system? Well, I couldn't exactly pick up a Brian Tracy or a Zig Ziglar book. I mean, that would have taken me a year to read, let alone anything else. So I actually found YouTube and YouTube was just becoming popular at that stage because we were just moving off dial up back then. And I typed in the sales system and all these videos came up. And so what I would do is I would spend eight hours out in the field selling and then I'd spend eight hours at home every day practicing the next step in the sale. And I would do that every day. Weekends were great. I'd spend 16 hours practicing. I'm sure that doesn't sound like fun to anyone. I mean, I wouldn't wish it on anyone. But literally it became, you know, seventy four doors before my next sale, then forty eight, then thirty six, and then twenty one, and then eighteen, and then seven, and then three. I got it down to making a sale on average every three doors. About six weeks in, my manager pulls me aside and I I thought I was in trouble, right? He had this weird look on his face. And remember, I was the quiet guy that handed him my paperwork downstairs. Never spoke to anyone. They had all these boisterous salespeople upstairs talking about how hard the industry was, how tough things were. You know, back then, the national sales figures only got printed out once a month. So he looks at this report and he said, Matt, we're kind of blown away by this, but you're the number one salesperson in the company. So put this in perspective, I went from scared to sell, terrified, really to being the number one in the company in about six weeks. So they gave me a sales team and they said, oh, if you can sell, you can manage. I don't know why people think that that's true. But here I am with a team of 20 going, I have no idea how to manage. Again, my manager reminds me, we just throw that up against the wall and see what sticks. Well, number one stuck. Literally 24 hours, my entire team had quit. (laughs) So there I am back to YouTube, learned how to manage, got promoted seven times in about 12 months. And then if you were to fast forward just shy of a decade, you know, about a year in, I, I decided to start my own business. And then just shy of a decade later, i had been responsible for five multimillion dollar success stories.
1: Wow, that's quite a journey. <laughs> uh, amazing. So um, what uh, smart habits uh, do you feel have been crucial in your career in this journey?
2: You know, I think the biggest one is, I think the whole world talks about having hustle and grit. And it's good to, I mean, in business, you are gonna to have to work hard, especially at the initial stages when you don't really know what you're doing in any element of your business. And you've gotta realize you're the marketing person. You're, I mean, if you think you're not a salesperson, by the way, look around, right? That, you know, in the book Zero to One, they're like, look around. If you don't see any salespeople, you're a salesperson, right? So you're in sales, you're in marketing, you're, you're in product delivery, you're trying to deal with all of these things the most important thing that I learned was that there had to be a system and a process because then you can improve it. So when you talk about smart habits for me, I felt like I had a lot of disadvantages because you know I couldn't read, I couldn't spell, you know, learning was difficult for me, but I did more with the information that I had because of that. But what I would do, I mean, with the sales process is if, you know, sales isn't like martial arts. It's not about how many books you learn or how, how many systems you learn or how many books you read. It's about putting together the basis of a system and then gradually getting better at each one of those elements every day, but not focusing on learning the next tactic or the next bulldog close, because I won't even teach bulldog closing. I think as an introvert, that's the one thing we hate to do, right? Bulldog closings, you know, hard hard selling, that's not us, but piecing together a system for that. But in everything that I do, I have a system. You know, my, my wife laughs at me sometimes and says, you know, I'm almost robotic in the way that I do things. And that's because for me, everything has to have a process because, you know, if you don't have a process, If something goes wrong, you can't improve. And if you have a process, you can continually improve. And that's why I feel that very few people can keep up with me because I spend my life optimizing every element of what I do from how I manage my finances right through to how I manage my you know, inbound sales calls for, for customers calling and the people that I that I sell to or offer advice to or people that I coach. It's why everything that I do gets gradually better. And I have to admit a lot of it, just like most introverts in sales, I sucked at the start, but I got gradually better. And it, yeah, sure, the introverts got better at it first faster than I did, but they flew by the seat of their pants, which means they were better at the same level forever. For me, I got gradually better over and over again until eventually, you know, I was beating them hands down. And that's what I love to share with every introvert that, you know, we're not second class citizens. You know, our path to success is just different to that of extroverts. Mm -hmm. And as soon as we embrace that and embrace systems that allow us to leverage our natural strengths, we can beat out those extroverted counterparts in sales in networking in presenting in leadership but also in all of those obviously more introverted plays we still shouldn't run by the seat of our pants because systems are always going to be an advantage there too
0: right exactly yeah so that's actually a good segue into our next question for you which is if you could tell us more about your book the introvert's edge how it came about and if you could share a piece of advice from your book that you'd like to share with introverts to implement today and you know our audience is uh mostly translators some interpreters as well uh what would that be
2: sure so the the first thing is i mean the book itself you know i I think it said up front that i actually didn't want to write this book Mm -hmm. you know for me you know i I built a bunch of really successful businesses in Australia and I decided when I moved to the US that I wanted to coach and consult people on how to create rapid growth in their own businesses. And I talk about, you know, there's a lot you can do before selling, right? You can differentiate, you can niche down. And that takes a lot of the heavy lifting away from sales, right? So in the last part of my book, I talk about, you know, I I explain the whole sales process. And then I say, but if you run your own business, there's a lot of things you can do beforehand that makes sales much, much easier. But what I did is I actually started delivering a presentation that I call rapid growth, the lazy way from stage. And I would talk about, how to differentiate, how to niche. And before I started talking about sales, I'd tell them my personal journey as an introvert and how I became a salesperson, right up to putting a photo of me at my sister's wedding with terrible acne so people could see how I was then rather than how I am now. And they only get to see that slide for about a second or two, believe me. It changes really quickly, but it helps people realize that you know they're projecting extroversion. It's not the reality. So... For me, what I found, though, is people kept coming up afterwards. And while a lot of people said that they loved the content, so many people came up and said, I had no idea that as an introvert that I could even sell. I thought that I just had to accept subpar subpar results. The uh, the reality of me and my own business was always going to be a struggle. So I kept telling all of the sales influencers that I know that somebody should write a book on introverted selling, i.e., not me, but somebody should. And everybody that I told said, Matt, no one's going to buy a book on introverted selling. No one is. Now, in my head, I was like, how could that be? I mean, you've got thousands of books for extroverts. There's not one book for introverts. And surely, given it's 50% or most of the world's economy, somebody's gonna buy it. But nobody would buy into the idea. So eventually, I ended up working with this guy, Derek Lewis, and Derek was a ghostwriter. And so I ended up, so he worked it, predominantly, you know, trying to work with business authors. And, you know, he made 27000 in 2013, 12000 in October of 2014 when he first reached out. And by the end of the year, we got him up to 120000 By the end of the following year, he made just shy of 300000 I mean, just April the following year, he made 200000 just in that one month as a ghostwriter. You know, he charged 20000 and now he's charging, you know, 100000 to do a ghostwritten book. And he's like, Matt, you've got to share these systems and processes with the world. And I talked to him about the book, and, you know, he convinced me that we should work together on a project to do it together. So he ended up, and I'm like, he's a walking case study, so why not? So he and I worked together on creating that book. And I mean, yeah, as you said, I mean, the book's been nothing but successful. You know, even though my publisher got bought out the week my, my, my book launched, it still made, you know, the eighth most sold book on Amazon's platform. It's to, as of today when we're doing this interview, I, I check before I do interviews, it's still a bestseller on Audible. And it's, you know, it's always, you know, help. I get so many wonderful responses from everybody about, you know, how much it's helped them. And I think the thing that makes the biggest difference. So one thing I will say, and you know, because we're not going to be able to cover all of the steps in, in my, my, my publisher hates me when I say this, but you don't need to buy my book. What you do need to do is you go to the introvertsedge.com, you'll be able to download the first chapter of the book. And there I'll help you overcome your fear of selling and your belief that it's possible for you. And then what I'll do is I'll outline the full seven steps To the sale. If you do nothing more than grab that seven-step outline, look at what you currently say and fit it in under those steps. Firstly, you'll realise you say some things out of order. Then you'll realise there's some certain things that don't fit. Stop saying that to customers, right? No business being in a sale. And then you'll realise there's some gaping holes, generally around asking the right questions and telling you know great stories. Now, if you do nothing more than that and fill in those gaps, you'll double your sales easily in the next 60 days. Now, if you're talking about professional industries and highly complex industries like translation because you know it's really hard to explain you know having translated my book now into eight languages right words have different meanings you've got to explain this to the author you've got to explain how how it's going to tap into their markets and how it's going to open up roi and it's so easy to get into all that jargon Mm -hmm. and then the customer's overwhelmed with all of this and then they say oh just let me think about it and then they never get back to you Mm -hmm. the reason for that is most people that are speaking to you, they don't want to hear about the jargon. They don't care. Nobody cares, right? The thing is, it's important to you because this is what you do for a living and you spent 30 years developing it. Like if I spend, you know, if I teach people everything I know about marketing, people are going to go, wow, that's overwhelming. And the same with sales. The goal is you have to simplify it. And there's nothing better than simplifying through a story of somebody that you worked with that wanted what they wanted, that you got them to an amazing result you know, I, there's some really great advantage with stories. I mean, firstly, people remember up to 22 times more information when embedded into a story so that they'll remember it. And when it gets stressful and they're trying to figure things out, it's easy to remind them of what you told them originally. Secondly, and this is huge for, you know, for introverts is that, you know, for us, we don't naturally strike up rapport as easily, but we're great at fostering deeper relationships. Stories, create artificial rapport. What actually happens is this thing called neurocoupling happens when we tell stories, which synchronizes our brains, which stimulates artificial rapport that we can then leverage into real rapport as we foster that relationship. And the most important is it short circuits the logical mind and speaks to the emotional mind. Now, if you're wondering what the difference is, the logical part of the brain is the part of the brain that says, that'll work for me, that won't work for me, I don't have time for this, I'll just send me a proposal. The emotional part of the brain just goes story time and it listens. Mm -hmm. It's a completely different response. So what happens is it assumes all the detail is fact and it just listens to the outcome. And if the outcome is we work with someone just like you, we got them an amazing result, here's their ROI or you know, how happy they are, that is the, the focal point that really makes a difference. Now, if you think about all the jargon you generally say in the sale, what you wanna do is replace it with a story. So what I always suggest if you're taking an inbound call is you can say something as simple when, when you get on the call, you know, I'm, you know, so glad that we finally get a chance to, uh, to connect. Yep, yep. Me too. By the way, don't hide away from getting them on the phone, right? If you're trying to sell via email, that is the world's worst thing. Like Derek, that's what I discovered with him as a ghostwriter. Like he was literally trying to sell through these long emails. I'm like, Derek, what do you think your clients don't like doing? He's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, they're asking you to ghostwrite. What do you think they don't like doing? writing how are you communicating again he was communicating via email these long ridiculous emails so we got them to say when he got an inquiry he would respond with something as simple as this you know john thank you so much for reaching out i just checked out your website it looks like you're doing some amazing things as a matter of fact we just finished working with someone that's uh, in a very similar industry and we had an amazing working relationship However, when it comes to a ghost book, it all comes down to relationship, which is why I would like to get on a call with you to make sure that you and I are a personality match, and because I have a few more questions I need to ask before I give you a fixed price. Below is a link to my scheduling link. I look forward to speaking with you soon. He would then get on a phone call, and you can frame it as something as simple as this. You know, I'm so glad, John, we we get a chance to speak. Yeah, me too. Okay. Well, look, I've had a chance to look over your website, the brief notes that you left me on your reservation. What I'd like to do, though, is take a step back, learn a little bit more about you, your project, what you're struggling with, and really how I can be the most help to you in the time we have together today. Now they're going to open up and share all of these things that they want to do, and they're trying to get another language, and they're trying to navigate. They give you everything. You can pinpoint one element of that, frame it, lead straight into a story, and now you've got them because you've created that artificial rapport. They finally feel like it's tangible. You can just make mistakes in everything else, and that will get you more likely to the deal than anyone else that is going through jargon, detail-based sales. Now, what I will say is that most people tell stories incorrectly. Now, in chapter five of my book, I talk about what I call the four elements of a story. But for today, for simple purposes, what I would suggest is the way most people tell stories, because everyone says, oh, I do tell stories. Well, no, you don't. Not, Not like a story should be told. You say, oh, I went with the customer, they wanted this, and we gave it to them. That's not a story. Think about the way you talk about how you met your partner. Right? you know, The first time you tell the story of how you, how I met my wife, you know, it was kind of a little bit bulky, you know, but as you tell it more times, right? Everyone knows this, right? You know, you start to see that people enjoy certain things. So you might embellish on those a little bit more. Then you have, well, oh, that part didn't go over well. So you start to cut those things out. Eventually, it becomes a bit of a theatrical masterpiece, right? Like I say some things, my wife says others, we then hold each other's hands, we look at each other, and then we look at the person and say, so that's how we met. That's how you want one of your business stories to be. The problem is people don't think of it that way, right? Stories are not supposed to be a tick list of items that you did for a person, but you take me through this emotional journey of how this person was struggling, how they were stressed out and how you got to them to a positive outcome. You know, when I worked with Oracle, you know, I I sat down with a group of seven people and I literally interrogated them for 45 minutes to get the elements of the story out. And it took that long to get the information out. And then I retold them the story back in about 45 seconds. And they were like, that was so much more compelling. How did you do it? And it's a simple structure, as I said, that I talk about in chapter five. But what I did is I said, but there are some things missing. Firstly, what was the customer's name? And they're like, oh, um, it was David. I said, here's the thing. I can't feel the pain of the CTO, but I can feel the pain of David. When it comes to David, I can feel everything. So most people don't mention people's names and you absolutely should. The next thing I find though, is most people don't know the most important information. So I said, you know, this was a company that wanted to go into the cloud and they had a really successful outcome. I said, but you didn't say why they went to the cloud. You said you have been chasing them for years. What changed their mind? Well, it turns out the server crashed just before Christmas and they couldn't run payroll. It was a government organization and there were thousands of staff that didn't get paid in the biggest spending season of the year because the systems were down and his entire team had to work through Christmas. David was the guy that ruined Christmas for a government organization and all of his staff, yet they didn't tell that part of the story. So when you look at your stories, you've got to remember there are real people that are worried about losing their jobs. There are real people that are aspiring to make money but worried about paying their next bill. There are people that have aspirations and fears. Those are the reasons why people buy. Yet most people stay so much in the logical element of the story if they tell a story at all.
0: Yeah, that's true. It's very interesting. And I think Veronica and I would both say that translators are similar to writers where they also don't like to get on the phone very much.
1: Right, yeah. But I mean, that what I really... Um think a lot of our listeners can relate to is that uh, while many of us are uncomfortable with the sale process we are very comfortable in uh with like processes in our work Mm -hmm. like we all have a process when when it comes to translation or interpreting so why not take that passion and love for processes and turn it into you know this other thing and make sales a comfortable process Yeah, something you
0: can rely on absolutely I mean when I tell stories
2: I tell the same stories all the time Because then I don't have, like as an introvert, I don't want to have a thousand stories and I don't want to say them off the cuff. They're the same stories every time. Like I've been on over 150 podcasts and I've told one of three stories every single time. When I do a sales call, I tell the same story every time. Why? Because I know my niche. They always come with the same problems. I remind them of a story if they've already Mm -hmm. heard it. Or I, read, I tell it if they come through a referral, and I keep it simple. When I explain my system for working with someone, I have two options. I can explain it with jargon, or I can explain it throughout the story. The customer is going to appreciate it through the story because it makes it more relatable to them. Yeah.
0: Speaking of that, so we, we, we know that many freelancers have a hard time marketing selling their services. And I was actually just uh, talking to somebody else this morning about this, and I said, there's this conception that you can put your website up online or you can open your business and you know build it and they will come. But that's not how it works. Um, and there was something I was reading in your book, um, in the chapter called Set the Stage, and I thought this so relates to translators. So if you don't mind, I'm going to actually just read this little portion here where it says, we're so familiar with what we do, what we offer, and how valuable our services are that we often forget to properly introduce ourselves to potential customers. On the other hand, you probably don't want to feel like you're bragging on yourself. Helping people appreciate the level of value you can deliver often does feel like you're showing off, but you have to assume that the person on the other side of the desk or the phone doesn't immediately understand your value. Until you prove yourself otherwise, you're just a commodity. And that is something that I think uh, we talk about, Veronica and I talk about, and I also talk to a lot of translators about, is that if you don't tell them, they won't know. And I think that that's, that's really key. And so when I was reading that, I was like, this is exactly <laughs> you know, what we know, but so yeah. how can introverts then learn to sell well beyond just the process? Because we can, we can come up with a process, right? But it's the delivery part that I think is difficult too, for introverts. It's not just the creation of the, the process.
2: Well, so sales development is a, is a series of stages. So firstly, You have to obviously let's let's take sales when the customer's calling, because there are some things again, as I said, that you can do to not be seen as a commodity before you even get to sales. And if we get time, we'll talk about that as well. But if we're talking about when the customer calls, the problem is we don't know what to say. A lot of a lot of introverts, especially, we're all stuck in our heads, right? So we're constantly thinking the right thing to say. And then we assume that if they booked a call with us, they must have done their due diligence. I I can guarantee at the end of, you know, today, you know, after being on this podcast, someone will reach out and say, oh, Matt, you know, what you said really resonated with me. I'd love to talk to you and we'll end up on a call. And it would be easy for me to assume that that person knows the value of what I provide. And then I'll say, oh, so did you hear me on a podcast? Yeah, I heard you on blah, blah, blah podcast. And, you know, I thought, you know, I thought what you did, you said really resonated with me. And then I'll start to talk them through things. And it's seemingly obvious that while they remember loving what I spoke about, they have no memory of anything I discussed. And because of that, I need to remind them of everything. You know, I have people that have read my entire book and then I'll bring out things and they will say, oh yeah, I forgot about that. It's nice for you to bring that back up. I have people that go and see my keynote presentations multiple times because they like to be reminded. Here's the thing, you do what you do every day. They booked the appointment with you and they haven't thought about you since. As a matter of fact, they've had fights with their husband and their wife. They've gone to kids' daycare situations they've had to deal with. They've had staff that aren't performing the way they're supposed to. They've had family members that are sick. They've had a whole bunch of things happen and they have not thought about you since they first reached out or they spent 30 seconds doing their due diligence and made a quick decision to let's just get on the phone and see what happens. So you can't assume that they know anything about you. So how do you brag on yourself without bragging on yourself? Well, firstly, when you get to storytelling, you introduce your credibility there. It's a great place to do it. But also, you know, a lot of times when I start a sales call, I'm like, I'm so glad that we finally get a chance to chat. I'm, you know, I apologize if it's been a few weeks, but you know, a lot of people try and schedule these calls. So there's a a fair bit of a waiting list. And, you know, by saying that, I'm implying that I'm in high demand. You know, but I went to a training, there's a story uh, that I talk about in the book that I went to a training where I was teaching a team of salespeople at Colliers International and I sold to the directors of the company and I'm going in to teach all these salespeople that literally, I mean, half of the team will happily call themselves bulldogs, right? They get hyped up on coffee, fist on the table, yell at the phone. Yet I am this quiet introvert that has to make sure that these people respect me enough that I, they're going to let me train them. So when I walk in, they ask me how my Thanksgiving was. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, yeah, it was great, just short. Of course, that's going to get them to say, well, why was it short? And they said, well, you know, I had a whole bunch of TV interviews the following day. And, you know, I, I had, you know, my wife's family over and I didn't know how much you Americans party for Thanksgiving. But, you know, I I, I went to bed early um, but I didn't manage to get any sleep. And anyway, so I was in TV interviews the next day and I, you know, I had two, two shows to do and they were like one at 5 a.m. and one at 7 a.m. So you know, I was pretty unrested the next day, but you know, I ended up having to go cut to bed at about seven o'clock so I could get up early for that, right? Just little elements like that that embed credibility. You know, a lot of times when we talk about things, you can give general context. So when you're going to ask questions is a great way to do it. So one of the things that a lot of people do is they feel like they want to ask questions. So they start asking questions and the customer goes, just tell me how much it costs because they feel like you don't have control of the sale. So you can step back and say, "Look, one of the things that I need to, there's a couple of things that I need to understand before we get into the process of talking about exactly how I can help you. So I'm going to need to ask you a couple of questions if that's okay. Um, and just so I, I've got greater context and like, Oh yeah, well, that's fine. No, one's going to say, no, 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 tell me the price until they know enough about you. And then when you're asking questions, you can say, you know, what I find is lots of people have different and, you know, I'm, I'm projecting what might come up in translation, but a lot of people have different outcomes that they're looking for from translation. You know, I'll give you an example. When I worked with Coca-Cola, what they were really looking to is get market, that market domination where a lot of other, you know, smaller little, uh, companies that I work with, what they're really looking at is how it what's the least, the the least heavy lifting they can get to get in front of their ideal customer audience, right? So you can kind of frame, I used to work with Coca-Cola, but I also work with small businesses, right? So you embed that credibility in the context that you have. If you do it in a way that gives them a reason for why you're explaining it to give them context, it allows them to go, he's not bragging, he's just trying to give me an example. But what I love to do, my favorite is to embed that credibility within the story. Right, and then when you're giving them suggestions and ideas, talk about the suggestion as it applies to one of the big deal clients you worked with. Again, you feel like by educating them, you're giving them great information. They feel like you've opened up a fire hose of information and it's overwhelming. But if you give them an example of something that they could do and explain it as you worked through a big deal clump, co- client or company, they're gonna go, Oh, it's relevant to me. And he's only mentioning that or she's only mentioning that to help frame. So I understand it, and that's how you can really step step back from that. Now, the one thing that I would really suggest, though, is that you really understand that you can do a lot from credibility well before you get to the process of selling. And what I mean by that is, I'll give you an example. I worked with it was just a content writer um, who, you know, she she would write you know content for pretty much any website under the sun, and she's actually a feature in my next book, but she basically she was charging two and a half thousand and she had four monthly clients. So she's earning about $120,000 a year working with four clients. However, in the space of 60 days, she lost two of those clients. One of them got bought out, the other one um, went went broke. And so now she's down to two clients. And so when we decided to work together, I have a waiting list for clients. And by the time we got to work together, she's down to one client. She's now making two and a half thousand dollars. So she's been trying to hustle to get clients, but, Everybody these days, she's like, people won't commit to two and a half thousand dollars a month. They, they all want these little piecemeal deals. And, you know, so I end up quoting, I end up hustling to get deals, I end up invoicing. Nothing simple. I'm working harder, I'm making less money. So what I did is I started to look at all the clients that she worked with, and I realized that there were a couple of clients she worked with where she seemed to have this underlying passion. I couldn't quite tell what it was, but they were health technology companies. So we got, I got on the phone with her and I said, there's something there. What is going on with health tech companies? Why, why do you seem to have a little bit more passion there? And she's like, I can't believe you noticed that. The reason for that is because I actually, you know, had a pretty significant heart condition when I was younger and it was, te- you know, health tech that really saved my life. So, you know, I'm really, you know, really connected to the healthcare care space because I believe they do a lot to help. They saved my life. And I said, interesting. I said, what do you think some of the, the biggest issues that the healthcare space have. And they're like, well, you know, they don't know who their customer is. They end up writing content for their golf buddies. They, they have no idea what to put out there and they have no idea how to get in front of their ideal clients. And I was actually, remember being pretty blown away about how much she knew about the health tech space, given the fact that she hadn't really identified that as her niche market. I said, what we should do is instead of, you know, calling yourself a content writer or a marketer, why don't we call you the mission maven instead? Instead of focusing on everybody, why don't we just focus on just purely the health tech space? And then instead of saying, you know, fee for service, just, you know, tell me what you want written and I'll do it, or, you know, sign up for a $2,500 subscription, why not offer them a really short term intensive, what I call a Trojan horse package, which allows them to go in, determine who their avatar is, audit their current content to work out what's wrong with it, and then create a content tree of content that they could write to their avatar and then build out a content distribution strategy. At the end of that, you can build them a request for pricing and a scope of work document and say, at that point, they can hire anyone. Of course, we had a script for then signing them up for a long-term service. I said, if you do that, instead of trying to get them to commit to a $2,500 subscription, my belief is you can sell this small service, which is only a couple of sessions for $3,500, and then upsell them to a $10,000 a month package. So she started to market to health tech companies as the Mission Maven, saying she specialized in that niche. And all of a sudden, she started. I mean, health tech's almost impossible to break through in, but because they didn't know what the Mission Maven was, all of a sudden they started to, to be interested, at least find out, because they know they've said no to marketers before, they've said no to content writers, but they never said no to a Mission Maven and they wanted to explore that. She signed up literally within the space of 45 days, one client to a three and a half thousand dollar package. And at the end of that, she explained the scope of work and she went to the RFP and the guy's like, can't you just do it? And she said, well, usually we work with an exclusive set of clients, but we try and you know keep what the information we have is completely unbiased, but sure, we really enjoyed working with you. So we'd love to extend the opportunity to one of our VIP clients, the price for that's $10,000 a month. And the client said, sure, that's fine. It happened again, about 20 days later, now she's at $20,000 a month. Within in the space of roughly, it was about six months, she got up to $40,000 a month, 80 months later, she was ac- acquired by a big digital agency. The key to her success was sales, yes, but it was about calling herself the mission maven, understanding a niche. So a lot of the people that are listening today, what they really need to do is say, yes, I'm a translator, but what are the things outside the scope of my functional skill that make me unique? And how do I then come up with a unified message like the Mission Maven? Like for me, I call myself the rapid growth guy. It's the higher level benefit of being great at marketing, sales, inbound and outbound. So I call myself the rapid growth guy. Whitney focuses just on health tech, I focus on introverted service providers. That allows us to get heard in a crowded marketplace. And then when we have a sales call, they're not checking between three or four people they see as a commodity. They see you as the only logical choice. And that transforms everything because then all of a sudden you're not having to worry about what everyone else is pricing out at. You can charge what you want.
1: Mm, That's amazing. And that's so valuable for our colleagues who are looking at uh, ways to niche down and, and specialize and really stand out and be unique. Um, that's wonderful. So one thing that we notice um, our colleagues talk a lot about, and uh, we have talked about it on the podcast too, is the imposter syndrome. Because that, that thing can really paralyze a freelancer and um, can make the process of marketing or selling or discussing your prices with a client really like a mission impossible. So do you have uh, any tips on how to keep the imposter syndrome at bay?
2: Yeah, sure. So the first thing is, if you don't have a sales system, you feel like an imposter, because anytime a customer says no to you or has any objection, it feels like a personal attack. So having a sales system, it's an external thing. Like, you know, when Henry Ford invented the Model T, you know, motor vehicle, when something went wrong on the line, he didn't go, oh my gosh, I was never built to be making cars right? The same deal is when you you sell. If you've got an external process and something goes wrong, it's just something external that you need to fix, perfect and get better at. Now, only change one thing at a time. Otherwise, you don't know what's blowing up in your face. Once you've got the basic structure and it's working, focus on perfecting one thing at a time. But knowing that the process is external really will help you overcome that uh, fear of um, you're not being good enough and that they're evaluating you and you're not as good as everybody else. The other thing I'll tell you is truthfully, if you know 5% more than the average person, you're considered an expert. Your real problem is not that you don't know as much as everyone else in your competition, it's that you're not great at making it relatable to the person you sell into, which who knows much less than you. So what happens is we compare ourselves against everyone else that's got more experience than us and go, oh, I'm not good enough. The truth is that they can't, the customer can't understand what they're saying either. So if you focus instead of trying no know more to become better, focus on being more relatable, telling more relatable stories, and having a system that allows them to make a decision, because truthfully, no one wants to say yes in a sale. So if you learn how to navigate them through a sales process that doesn't, re- re- its just a step-by-step process with no bulldog take t- t- hard closes, that will get you to a much more successful outcome. So my suggestion is stop worrying about what you don't know and realize what you do know is far more than the person you're speaking to. If you focus on making it relatable rather than learning more, you're going to close more deals. And because of that, you're gonna help more people. Because in truth, a lot of people go out and wanna do things that will really help them. But because the people that they speak to are terrible at sales, they end up doing nothing. And that adversely affects their business. So you're doing both the client and yourself a favor.
0: Yeah, definitely, I think. These are all really good tips for our colleagues and and for us as well. So I was going to ask you, how can introverts or introverted freelancers connect with their clients in a way to gain their trust and ask the right questions? Because I think that's another part of it too. One, you know, nobody wants to be called out of the blue. <laughs> uh, but two, when you do get on the phone, how do you know how to write, ask the right questions, especially these days when we have had to shift mostly online interactions due to the pandemic? I mean, we're used to working um, without seeing our clients face to face a lot, right? Um, so a lot of what we do is via email. But to, to, to let's say reaching out to direct clients, I mean, how do you ask the right questions?
2: Well, the first thing is you have to be relevant to them. For instance, You know, we were talking offline about the fact that I actually uh, had a referral from, uh, well, I had an endorsement for my book from a guy called Ivan Meisner. And Ivan Meisner was the founder of BNI. And I got connected with someone at BNI in Vietnam. And... I actually sent them a copy of my book, said I was looking to get my book translated in Vietnam and a translator that they knew then organized a translation relationship between, between us and a major publisher in Vietnam. And now my book's in, in Vietnamese. So the, the thing for that is I'm out there right now, you know, our, my book's currently translated in eight, eight languages. I've got six other languages that we're trying to secure, but I'm always looking to get my book translated into more places. And I know that if a translator has a relationship with a publisher and they believe in the book, it's much more likely to happen yet I was the one that had to do all that heavy lifting. I had to go and find a translator. You know, I had to you know, then help them navigate that relationship with their publisher. So if there's a book that you like and you notice that it's not in your language, if you happen to like The Introvert's Edge and you notice that it's not in your language, reach out to the author and say, hey, I think that this publisher would really like it. Would you like me to suggest it? Because you'll get the translation work. So a lot of people are like, oh, I need to hard sell. There's so many easy sales in there. That, you know, my, you know, the person that translated my first book, because they introduced me to the publisher, of course, I endorsed them to translate the work because they were a supporter of my work. Now they're translating my second book. They've got, you know, so she'll have long-term business because The Introvert's Edge is going to be a series. So what I would suggest is have a reason to reach out. For instance, if you notice that there's some specific thing. So, you know, uh, for instance, India has a collectivist society, right? So because of that, individual, uh, individualism is, you know, is, is becoming more and more popular. But, you know, there's a lot of religious reasons for why it's taking longer. And, you know, obviously, the the, the economy there is very different. So if you feel like you're, if you translate into to Hindi, for instance, and you you know that there's a book that's a really good fit or you know someone that has a training product that is a really good fit reach out and explain why you think it's a good fit now one of the things that's really powerful right now because if you do what everyone does you're going to get results like everyone does which is not what you want but linkedin has a wonderful thing called voice memo these days which means i mean it's a powerful tool because no one knows it like we've all seen those big pictures on linkedin right it goes on forever starts off with I hope you're doing okay with COVID. And then there's this hard pitch with a link to schedule a call. Nobody wants that. However, you know, for me, I pick, like if there's somebody I want to speak to, I leave, like there was a podcast that I wanted to be on the other day. I noticed that he was one of the top podcasts. So I picked up my phone, looked him up on LinkedIn, connected with him, said, I'm a fan of your work. He accepted, I left him a voice memo and I was booked on his podcast three days later. Voice memo is something really useful. But again, don't just reach out and say, hey, do you have any translation work? If you know your niche, you know what they want. So if you reach out, for instance, Whitney was reaching out to health tech companies Mm -hmm. to say that most health tech companies don't know who their customer avatar is. You know, they're running, they're spending fortunes on content and they're not getting results, which leaves them going to ads, but then they get these short-term results and they get stuck in this situation. If you're in that situation, I'm the mission maven, we should definitely talk. That's very different to, oh, I sell copywriting and marketing services. Do you have any need for that? So a lot of times, people's way of reaching out is incorrect. Now, if you're picking up and doing a cold call, again, you have to have a reason for it. So you could say, you know, I, I notice um, that you're in pharmaceutical. You, you're a pharmaceuticals company that's launching into, and I mean, a lot of companies have. You, know, you can you know watch lists of who's applying for trademarks in certain countries. If they're applying for trademarks in certain countries, you bet that that's become an important marketplace for them. So again, thinking outside the box, you can reach out and say, I noticed that you applied a trade for a trademark um, in Turkey I'm a specialist that translates into the Turkish language, especially in pharmaceuticals, you might notice that there's a lot of eccentricities with with, With translation that I specialize in, you know, in business coaching. There's a lot of eccentricities in ghostwriting. There's lots of eccentricities in the industry. So if you have a niche. It again gives you an edge. So if you have a Unique message that separates you, you know what your niche is, therefore, you know their problems a lot of times better than they understand in them themselves. When you leave a voice memo, when you pick up the phone and do a cold call, when you do an email, you're all of a sudden, sudden relevant. Now, if you want to just send out broad based pitch messages, that doesn't work as well. But if you want, you don't, no one's got time to customize every pitch, but if you have a niche, then every single pitch is customized. It just happens to be a broad-based pitch out to everybody in that industry, but it will feel customized to each one of them.
1: So true. So uh, one of our last questions is um, actually less about an introvert or selling, but more about running your own business. Uh, we believe that work-life clarity rather than work-life balance is extremely important for uh, freelancers and business owners. And we talk about it throughout our podcast. And we originally heard about this concept on the Deliberate Freelancer podcast. And we even made this the topic of our first episode. What are some smart habits that you feel help you prevent overwhelm and draw some boundaries between your work and personal life?
2: So for me, I have, I'm a big list writer. So every night before I go to bed, well, before I finish work, I should say, I write a list of the most important things that I need to do tomorrow. Because what I find is unconsciously, my brain works away at fixing those problems before I even sit down. Some of the biggest problems that I can't figure a way through at five o'clock at night, nine o'clock in the morning, I sit down at my desk and I have the answers. So what I do is I write a list the night before of what I need to do. And the reason being, is again, we all live in these global businesses right now. Otherwise your emails dictate your priorities for the next day. So what I do is I write a list at five o'clock, that list is what I do. And I will check my email when I sit down at nine o'clock, but what I'm flicking for is anything that's urgent that needs to come above that. Outside that, I will then do the priorities that are on that list before I check my emails. A lot of times we let our lives get dictated by the sense of urgency that the, of the phone ringing and by the emails that come through. I don't start my day with others until I do what's important to move my day forward, my, my business forward first.
0: That's so true. I, something I have recently put into place and it changes your entire day. I could totally attest to that. <laughs> So one thing we like to do at the end of our episodes is to share our special segment, and we're excited that you're joining us for it today, so I think we have time to share what's on your desk, something that could be a tool, gadget, or resource that you use in your work or your personal life that you think is particularly useful or you'd like to recommend.
2: You know, what's interesting is, it's actually a technology, so remember, I don't have the best reading speed. Even now, like, writing my book was an ordeal because, you know, every time I read something, I read it in text to voice. So I hear a robot Uh voice. And so for me though, without that technology, I would be doomed. So I have a software program on my computer called Natural Reader, which basically means I can grab the text and it reads it out. But one thing I will say is most people don't know this, but inside the accessibility settings on your iPhone, you can actually turn, you can actually make your iPhone speak. So I can click on anything that's an article on my phone and it will read it out to me. I can listen to text messages, all those sorts of things. And it literally is I highlight the text and click speak and it will speak it out to me so for me every you know if i was to read through something it takes me a lot of time if i can listen through it because there are two things that happen i get through it faster but also i my i use I, i'm finding that i can listen and be creative at the same time so i start to synthesize it with what i already know so one of the things that i will say especially from the translation world and the the writing world is that what I find is a lot of read it, like some of the, all the best books that I've ever read are more conversational in nature. Yet, a lot of times when you're translating, you can lose that, but also when you're writing a book, you can lose that. So for me, one of the things that I'm very focused on is everything that I write has that conversational nature. And that's because I use text to speech technology. If it sounds like it's cluttered or you know jargony, I, I clean it up and I make it better. So I think half the reason why, I mean, all of my books are written more like novels. The goal is that you kind of laugh out loud while learning, you know, how to sell or how to network. And for me, those technologies have made that possible for me.
0: Yeah, wonderful. And they say that the best copy right now is conversational copy. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks again for joining us today, Matthew. We really enjoyed talking to you and we hope that our listeners will find your tips useful and that they market and sell their translation services uh, more to prospective clients. Uh, But before we go, where can our listeners learn more about you or find you online?
2: Absolutely. So I would suggest, obviously, I share a ton of free videos on, on YouTube, on on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on Instagram. So feel free to connect with me in all those locations. Uh, obviously, you can pick up The Introvert's Edge, on, on which my first book on sales at the introvertsedge.com. You can download the first chapter there as well. Uh, the com forward slash networking. You can get my second book, which comes out in January, but there's a whole bunch of pre-order bonuses. So if you do check it out early, you know, direct message me your receipt on Facebook or or LinkedIn, and I'll make sure I add you to that list. And lastly, for those people that want to create their own unified message, their version of the the, the mission maven, the rapid growth guy, the authority architect, what you can do is go to matthewpollard.com forward slash growth. I've got a template there where you can really learn and you can really create your own unified message, discover your own niche, and it will take you about 45 minutes. And you know, funnily enough, when I do this exercise on from stage, you know, I say who here has a message they're more excited about and a niche you're willing to buy clients? And literally, you know, 97% of the room puts their hands up. But then when I say, keep your hand up, if this is the most time you spent on marketing since you started your business, 85% of the room kept their hands up. So mm-hmm. the key is that this stuff absolutely works if you spend the time doing it. So many people have said, my books have transformed their lives. But when I interrogate them on whether they're actually applying the information, well, that's a whole different story. So the people that are, are getting ROI, the others, it's transformed their lives, yes. But just believing, that knowing that it's possible is transformative. But I really want to pick see people take it from believing it's possible to actually applying what they've learned
0: yes definitely okay so we'll add those um, links to our show notes for sure and to our listeners you can read the first chapter of both the introvert's edge and the introvert's edge to networking free of charge by clicking one of the links in our show notes thanks again matthew for such a kind offer thank you That's it for this week's episode. Next week, we'll be sending our email subscribers a summary of today's episode with a link to the show notes so you can quickly find all the resources that we mentioned today. Our newsletter subscribers are always the first to know about our upcoming topics and special guests, so you can sign up for our emails on our website, smarthabitsfortranslators.com.
1: And if you like our podcast, there are a couple of simple ways you can show your support. Please share the podcast with your colleagues and friends and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This only takes a minute and we have recorded a quick video tutorial to show you how to do it. We'll link it in the show notes. Talk to you soon.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode and discovered some simple strategies that you can apply today at work or at home to help you achieve the lifestyle you desire. If you did, please let us know. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic you want us to cover, please send us a
1: message at hello at smarthabitsfortranslators.com. If you liked this episode, we'd appreciate if you'd leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share the podcast with other translators you know.